Hello and welcome. This is Social Studies, Voices Across America. I'm Bill Wood. And I'm Peter Goldsmith. We've got something different this time. And Peter, I kind of like this. I'm looking forward to it. We're going to look at comedy and what comedy has been in the culture, not just Western culture, but the culture in the world and how it might tend to move what we think and talk about and how culture grows through the activity of uh, comedians and court jesters. Like all other art forms, comedy and specifically stand-up is really social commentary. It's couched in a way that it's easily acceptable by the audience And it touches one of the things that's important in all communications, which is emotions. Comedy is there to make you laugh. While you're laughing, you can also think, hey, that was pretty interesting. Uh, Maybe he or she's got something there. And you've done a lot of research on this, Peter. In fact, some of the stuff that we have uh, we talked about before we got started goes back to B.C. times. I mean, this is these are early, early early comedians. Oh yeah. One of my favorite comedians and probably you don't know his name, but you probably know his work was Aristophanes. Aristophanes was one of the major figures in theater in fifth century BC, Greece. Euripides was another, but Aristophanes wrote primarily comedy. Uh, It was bawdy and it was ribald. Uh, And it was greatly admired, and he was a very, very well-known and uh, favored figure. I guess the most important piece that he wrote is the play Lysistrata. Lysistrata uh, was actually performed in Athens in 411 BC, and it's a comic account of the women coming together and trying to end the Peloponnesian War. Uh, Their device for ending the war was withholding sex from all the men. (laughs) And one of the articles I read, it says about the men, which was the only thing they truly and deeply desired. (laughs) Uh, So it it was really uh, a pretty great uh, play, and and it's passed down to us, and it's performed all over. Another one of the early uh, Greeks uh, was Menander. And he was about, I would guess, about 100 years after uh, Aristophanes, uh, Menander wrote a play, the only one of his that survives, which is called Drunkenness. And it was a slander on the uh, one of the politicians that he extremely disliked. Uh, and it was actually even a little bit more bawdy than Aristophanes. But Menander created for us something which is really important, and we call it the Menandrian formula. And it's basically, we see it in almost all comedy since that time, and that is, very simply put, A boy falls for girl, girl sort of falls for guy, Uh, boy tries really hard, girl's father dislikes boy, boy tries harder, gets deeper in the mud, finally boy tries extremely hard, father realizes he's a good guy, and everything comes together and everybody's happy after all. Uh, You can probably, if you've got a lot of fingers and toes, count the amount of sitcoms that follow the Menandrian formula. Not only sitcoms, but a couple of feature films that are in theaters right now follow that formula almost to a T. You know, as an aside, it is amazing. We like to think of these great stories that have come out of the blue, but writers, when they sit down, there's like, what, six, seven storylines, and that's all there is, and everything else is sort of some modification of those six storylines and how they fit into our lives. And the, the comedians, 
I know we didn't talk much about this, and I'm kind of throwing this at you, uh, but I do like the idea of comedians able to look at the culture. There's the great classic story of the comedian and the, the despondency and the depression, but the comedians do have the ability, and then maybe this is what makes them comedic, is to look at the culture to look at the human condition and find something offbeat or funny about it and are able to take us to a place that uh, we don't think about it and we become comfortable with ourselves, things that might be uncomfortable until you heard the comedian doing stand-up. Going back to an historical look at comedy, you have uh, Chaucer, Canterbury Tales, and even more importantly for me, is you have the early puppet shows. Puppet shows were really popular throughout Western Europe. And we're talking about Western comedy here. Later, I want to just uh, take a, talk a little bit about international comedy. But let, right now, let's stay with Western comedy. Uh, the puppet shows, which began probably in the late 16th century and all the way down, were very popular even to the 19th century. They did a very specific kind of comedy. They could do outlandish comedy that people couldn't do, but the audience allowed them to get away with it because they were puppets. It's kind of what the Simpsons do today. If Homer Simpson was a real person, he'd be in jail by now. But since he's an animated figure, he can get away with a heck of a lot. So it was a kind of comedy uh, that was very much social satire, but was protected by the non-humanity of it. When you said that, not just Homer Simpson, but the uh, the guy who owns the nuclear plant, he'd probably yeah. <laughs> be in jail. And uh, Bart Simpson would probably be put into some reform school somewhere. Sure, you know? sure. I mean, but... But that you're you're a thousand percent right. That's exactly what uh, comedy can do: is look at our own weaknesses and uh, and and put it in a way that we could laugh at it and become more comfortable with it. And to some degree, if it impacts our lives, and we say, "Hey, he's talking about me," or "She's talking about me." Maybe I can change or learn or grow, and people can move in a in a different place. We're going to have some comedians in this podcast. In fact, one of the early women. There's not a lot of women uh, that we that that have that impact because there weren't a lot of women that were allowed to have impact in early culture. But there, uh, there's uh, one woman in particular. When the TV became big uh, in the home, in people's lives in the 1950s, this woman uh, stepped up. And this story that we hear from her, she talks about the men in her life and dating them. And these are probably stories that uh, women can relate to immediately. Let's listen to Jean Carroll, a, a, a brilliant comedian. Uh, we don't know, hear a lot about her like we do about Moms Mabley or, or Phyllis Diller. But Jean Carroll, this is a funny stories about her dating life. Love, what is love? Does anybody know? Well, that's a moot question, isn't it? So I asked Moot. And uh, I asked Moot. Come on. So Moot, you see Moot? Moot, he's such a smart fella, and he's my first boyfriend. Oh, I was crazy about Moot. I went with Moot for, um, what did I go with him for? I don't remember now, but I, I really liked him. 
I liked him, but our romance was one of those triangles. You see, he and I were both in love with him. Well, anyhow, I said, Moose, how do you know when you're really in love? He said, Jeannie, you'll know because you'll feel so funny inside. You'll feel sick. And that's what happened when I met Jack. Jack asked me to marry him. And Jack, just looking at him, he was such a hunk of man, six foot two and a solid 80 pounds. <laughs> oh, and he had the most, he had the most fascinating eyes. They kept watching each other. And every time, every time Jack came near me, I got hot and cold all over. When he kissed me, I broke out in a rash and I got sick to my stomach. I thought, gee, this must be love. I never felt so sick in my life. So I married him. And you know what I found out afterwards? It wasn't love. I was allergic to him. We went out, and let me tell you something. He was a real sport. Money? Money meant nothing. Nothing. He didn't have any. <laughs> he took me out. He took me to a nightclub. What a swanky... What a band. Three pieces. Piano, stool, and player. And they... <laughs> and listen, I don't want you to think I'm critical. I never criticize other people. This guy ate like he was going to the chair. I mean, uh, as for manners, you know? I've seen people eat with their hands before, but not soup. And that... <laughs> <laughs> and these and pretty, pretty great, pretty great. You'll find that some of these stories, and it happens today. In fact, there was a woman whose name escapes me at the moment, but the more I listened to her, it sounded like she took a lot of her contemporary style from the kind of pace and uh, uh, the way that uh, Jean Carroll would deliver her stories. Now, before we get, before we move any further, I want to play another one here to see the difference between early comedy, uh, people like Phyllis Diller, uh, Rodney Dangerfield, and people that just use the quick line. They probably had some experience in vaudeville, but just the, the easy joke and not the, um, uh, the stories that came by. Here's Phyllis Diller talking about some fat jokes. This stuff is really hilarious. You know, the Richter scale for measuring earthquakes, it's illegal for her to jog in California. <laughs> Halloween, she threw a sheet over her body and went to a party as Alaska. <laughs> her dress size is junior missile. Her zipper is a part of Amtrak. <laughs> She was born on the 8th, 9th, and 10th of June. When she was a kid, her mother used to dress her alike. She was so big she could only play Seek. truck she was standing by a parking meter one day somebody stole her kneecaps it's all her own fault it's the way she eats hell if she can't move it she eats it <laughs> that's that that is the difference those two the two women uh but they do that comedy pacing all of it bring comes forward that's like 50 year old comedy and sometimes more in the case of gene carroll but the difference between a storyteller and a joke teller uh, is right there. The two examples that we just gave. Yeah, absolutely, Bill. Those are those are one line uh, jokes, and as we know, probably the most famous one line joke is the old comedian Henny Youngman. Mm, yeah. uh, 
take my wife, please. please. <laughs> uh, you know, ha, ha, ha. But you can imagine 70 years ago when the first time he did it, it was probably really funny. And, and again, he kind of bridges the gap between social commentary and just very funny one-liners. Take my wife, please, is a, is a funny joke, but it's a, it's a commentary on marriage in a way uh, that he obviously is unhappy with it and so forth. So we have those one-liners, and, 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 I, and you're right, Bill, most of those uh, quick one-liners are timing jokes, and they do come from vaudeville. But if you go down and even correlate them with what's modern today, if you go back to the sitcom, a sitcom is written, uh, I think it's four jokes a page or something like that. Mm. And if you've got, you know, uh, a 24 page script for a half hour sitcom, do the math. I think it's 96, but don't hold me to it. Wow. Uh, But but you got that those kind of jokes is going, you know, that same kind of timing. But we've matured and, and sophisticated ourselves a little bit more where we also have a story and, and, and a social comment. Uh, and when we moved on with um, social commentary as, as uh, comedy, you get to people like Lenny Bruce. Mm-hmm. And I think Lenny is uh, the acorn that started the tree, at least in this uh kind of comedy, a very important comedian, and and as you said before, with a lot of other comedians, a very tragic figure. He was a storyteller. He was a magnificent storyteller, and we're going to listen to one of the stories, but it also, stories out of the city of New York, you're a New Yorker, and you know all of the ways that people from different cultures had to intermingle. This story from Lenny Bruce on the Steve Allen Show really looks at how uh, people get along or don't get along in just the neighborhood. Here's Lenny Bruce. Now we dissolve to the exterior of the schoolyard. And there's all the Anglo-Saxon types, you know, they're bright and shiny with their switchblade tongues. And uh, <laughs> there's one, like, you know, he's all good with a ripped madras blazer, you know. Then the big pitch comes in. Listen to me. Come on, you guys. When I hear something I learned in school, what I can't forget. You know what I learned in the school? Putting my mind by high school principles. Something I can't forget. You know what I can't forget? I forgot. <laughs> no, I don't forget. Only in this country can copy my friend. I'm an Hispanic guy, okay? I'm Hispanic. Phil is a color guy, okay? Sal is a Jewish guy. There's a Japanese guy, a French guy. My friend in this country, we all have to stick together and beat up the Greeks. <laughs> Lenny Bruce. We think of Lenny Bruce as being a political commentator, which he moved to maybe later in his career. But this story has its own political edge in that it looks at, again, how people interacted in a multicultural uh, community and how everybody sort of got along together or didn't get along together and why. One of the things that, that uh, we used to always say uh, when I, was, I did grow up in New York City, as you said, and one of the things we'd always say was we are equal opportunity haters. We don't care what religion, color, shape, or size you are. We hate you. Uh, and, and, you know, those, those kinds of things were what we were feeling. Again, a correlation to later stuff. When Jewish people were ghettoized, uh, you find more Jewish comedians. When black people uh, were ghettoized, you found more black comedians and Asian comedians and women comedians and so forth. Why? 
Comedy was a way of sharing your pain in a funny, humorous, satirical, social commentary with the rest of the world. Uh, and I think it's really important, as I said to you before, Lenny, if he was the acorn of that tree, the tree certainly sprouted up. Uh, I know you've got someone else uh, you're going to play, but before you do, let me just say that uh, some of this comedy may be a little rugged to hear. So if you're under the age of 50, you may have to listen to it with an adult. Uh, and and um, I don't know how much you've cleaned it up, Bill. But I think the next guy we're talking about is truly one of the great comedic geniuses. And, of course, I'm talking about Richard Pryor. He's one of the people that everybody else points to, like Lenny Bruce. This is a story that has a political edge. He plays all the voices, but you'll understand how uh, important it was at the time to hear uh, the pain, like you mentioned, in so many people. Here's Richard Pryor. I gotta tell you something, Jed. I'm in love. Well, I think that's wonderful. Who you in love with? I'm in love with Ben, the blacksmith. <laughs> you in love with Black Ben, the blacksmith? <laughs> Try to say that three times, and I believe you. I love him. I love him. I love him. I love him. I believe you. I believe you. I believe you. I believe you. <laughs> Gotta go talk to him right now. Black men? Yes, sir, boss. What is it? You in love with my my sister? Yes. You gonna marry her? Yes. Then I'm putting an ad in the paper this Sunday. Gonna give you a big layout. Gonna build your shop up. You're gonna be in big time now, boy. And take good care of my sister. And love her the rest of your life. And we'll have a big family. And we'll be the first in the South to know true freedom and true love. And they'll remember the Clampett family. Oh, yes. Let's go, boy. Hand in hand down the street. Come on. Just a goddamn minute. Let's show just a goddamn minute. Just one goddamn minute. You said your nigga got killed. <laughs> Tried to clean some of that up. If we'd have put beeps in there for every yeah. bad word, it would have just been a. It would sound like an SOS signal in Morse code or something. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But the more people, they all the current comedians, and we're going to listen to one a little later, George Carlin. But all the comedians all point as the beginning of the contemporary commentary, comedic commentary, to Lenny Bruce. And Richard Pryor. Yeah, one of the interesting things, Bill, uh, uh, of course you're right, obviously, is that, you know, things don't come out of nowhere. There's always a historical predecessor. You know, one learns from the other, passes it on to another and another. And I've heard many, many comedians, Chris Rock and Dave Chappelle and Dave, uh, well, the white guy who's the uh, insomniac, I forget his name. He's a wonderful comedian, David Tell. Uh, those guys have all credited Lenny Bruce and, and Richard Pryor. 
And when you hear them, you can hear the angst in their voice. You can hear how much trouble they're in and how much laughter and social commentary and, and integrating themselves into a community that appreciates what they're saying is really what keeps them going. Uh, there's, and there's so many unfortunate, uh, things which go on with comedians because they're so highly strung and, and so I hate to say this, but, but fairly neurotic. I mean, look at some of them who are brilliant geniuses who are no longer with us. Robin Williams, for example, uh, Andy Kaufman, uh, you know, groundbreaking comedians who just couldn't suffer anymore, uh, a loss to them and their family, but of course to us as audience and, and appreciators of this comedic art. Uh, but it's really interesting as we move through it to see people taking bits and pieces from who came before them and reinventing the way to use those pieces. I think you've got something uh, with Sarah Silverman, who's an interesting comedian. People who follow their religion to the letter of the law are just silly. I mean, I want to tell Hasidic Jews, I promise you, God will not mind if you wear a nice cotton blend in the summer. <laughs> You're being ridiculous. <laughs> but we live in the greatest country in the world a country where we have freedom of religion and separation of church and state, only we don't at all and nobody says anything because we're used to it. <laughs> it says in God we trust on our money. It says in God we trust above the judge's bench in a courtroom, in a court of law where you have to put your hand on a Bible, the Christian Bible, it's not my Bible. I mean, if I, if I tell the truth, it's because I tell the truth, not because I put my hand on a book and made a wish. That's <laughs> crazy. That's craziness. The brilliance of these people. I know I've tried to be funny sometimes, and, you know, anybody could tell a joke. They have their favorite joke, and I everybody has one or two. But they are able to look at, again, the human condition and see the humor in it and allow us to laugh at even some of the painful things. Uh, and I, the confusion that we have as an audience, we think that they are happy and on top of the world because they make us laugh. But a lot of that, like you said, is just the outer display of their, the outer projection of their own pain in, um, uh, in 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 their comedy, uh, so like when Robin Williams took his own life, it was like, how could anybody that happy go lucky have that kind of pain? And we don't understand that that pain is hidden, and that maybe that's how they keep people away is by you know telling a joke. Well, think about this, Bill. Just think about the actual manifestation of a stand-up comedian. You've got to write something which is extremely funny for 60 minutes at least, okay? And then you've got to walk into a room of several hundred or maybe even several thousand people, none of whom do you know, and make them laugh. That's your job. I mean, think about that. You know, like you said, yeah, everybody can tell a joke. Ha, ha, ha. You know, my little granddaughter is now into the knock-knock jokes, okay? Ha, ha, ha. But the point being, that's impossible. How do you go out on stage in front of 
hundreds, thousands, and if you're on television, millions of people and make them laugh. It's an incredibly difficult job. You mentioned 60 Minutes. I've known comedians who are have gone to school to learn, and I've gone to some of their showcases, five minutes. I mean, you and I have been in broadcasting, and until you've been in broadcasting, you don't know how long uh, 10 seconds can be and how short 10 hours can be. Right, and right. Once they build on these five-minute segments, then they could work up to 60 minutes, but nobody can just step out of the gate and do 60 minutes, uh, especially when they have an audience of several hundred people who are sitting there. I dare you to make me laugh. Yeah, I dare you to make me laugh. Say something that's funny. Say something that's interesting. Say something that has a kernel of truth to it and let it reach me and let me react to it in some way. Certainly George Carlin was one of the guys who did this kind of stuff. We love to declare war on something at home, don't we? Anything we don't like about ourselves, we have to declare war on it. We can't get rid of this war mentality from our public life. We got a war on poverty, war on crime, war on cancer, war on litter, war on drugs. Did you ever notice we don't have a war on homelessness? No war on homelessness. You know why? You know why? I'll tell you why, because there's no money in it. There's no money in that problem. Nobody stands to get rich off of that problem. You find a solution to homelessness where the businessmen and the politicians can steal a couple of million dollars each, you'll see the streets of America begin to clear up pretty fast. I'll give you a couple ideas. Listen, I got a couple ideas for homelessness. First thing we ought to do, give the homeless their own magazine. (laughs) Give them their own magazine. That's a sure sign of making it in this country. Every group in this country that makes it gets its own magazine. They got Working Mother magazine, Black Entrepreneur magazine, Hispanic Business magazine. Any activity engaged in by more than four people in this country gets a magazine devoted to it. Dart throwing, backpacking, basket making, boating, hiking, walking. Walking! There's actually a magazine called Walking! Look, Dan, the new walking is out. Here's a good article, putting one foot in front of the other. <laughs> Give them their own magazine. You know? Come on. I'm just, I don't know, Peter. I, I, Carlin and the next guy we're going to listen to, Chris Rock, I, I'm embarrassed to talk about how many hours I've lost on YouTube looking up Carlin stories, Carlin videos, and just all of a sudden, it's two hours later. I mean, the, the man's ability to look at weakness in our culture, put it together into a couple of minutes, and give it back to us to say, see how silly you are? And it's amazing how he can do that and make us all laugh at a time when uh, there's a lot of pain. Yeah, I also think, Bill, and especially George Carlin, that was a great clip that you pulled. It's pretty courageous to go on stage and start making jokes about homelessness. Everybody is so serious. Oh, my gosh. Oh, oh, gee, gee. And it's one of the terrible problems in the world, not only in this country, but in the world. I just came back from your home city, Los Angeles, California, where – it's, it's amazing to me, uh, and I don't want to get too uh, political here, but you've got people making $100 million a year, and you've got people on, on, the, on the streets living in a cardboard box. I mean, you know, that needs to be fixed yesterday. 
that that's just unacceptable for all of us to allow that to go on. However, to get up and make a joke about it, you know, uh, is really courageous. I heard Sarah Silverman, who you just played recently, uh, do a joke on 9-11 one time. It was about six months after 9-11, and I was there, as you know. Uh, and, and the audience was stone cold quiet. And she just looked at everybody and said, too soon? Meaning, you know, if I do this in a year, are you going to laugh? So there's a tremendous courage and there's an edginess about these comedians, an edginess that they know they've got to push the envelope. And the only way they can pull it back in is like with Sarah Silverman, nobody responded. Uh, George Carlin, I'm sure got a lot of blowback on doing homeless stuff. But he had to. It was his way of saying, hey, guys, look at this. Look at this problem. Let's be ridiculous enough to give them a magazine as opposed to, like, give them apartments and jobs and, and, and food to eat. Uh, so that stuff is really important, you know. And for me, that's the growth of comedy, being courageous enough and talented enough to tackle a lot of these taboo uh, subjects. Now, we've talked about uh, people from Gene Carroll to Phyllis Dillard, Lenny Bruce, Richard Pryor, Carlin. Now, this is the other guy that people point to and say he's the one that we're going to follow after. I mean, Chris Rock has has done some of the best comedy, just like Carlin showing ourselves to us and saying, you got to be kidding. Here's Chris Rock. Affirmative action was put into place to offset policies that the United States government implemented during slavery that affect us today. Now, when I talk about slavery, no, no, no. When I talk about slavery, I'm just talking about a period of time where black people had no rights. So you talk about the 1600s to about 1964. <laughs> you know, give or take a year, depending on when your town decided to act right. Now, people go, well, what happened during slavery that could affect us today? What happened during slavery that could affect us today? A lot of shit happened during slavery that affects us every day. For instance, during slavery, they used to take the biggest, strongest slaves and breed them and try their best to make big, strong super slaves, okay? <laughs> That's right. That's right. And there's evidence of that today, like the NFL, for instance. <laughs> so NFL stands for Arlington. They bred the slaves, and this is why black people dominate every physical activity in the United States of America, okay? We're only 10% of the population, we're 90% of the final four, okay? We dominate all this ish, okay? Basketball, baseball, football, boxing, track, even golf and tennis. As soon as they make a heated hockey rink, we're going to take that shit up. <laughs> There's another one that you'd have to, if you put uh, beeps everywhere you needed a beep, you'd hear you'd, it would just be a, a, a constant string of beeps. We're running out of time here, but I think we've made the point, and I wasn't sure that we'd be able to when we first discussed doing this, but I think we've made the point that comedy. We wondered, in fact, you and I, when we talked about this, did com does comedy push or does comedy lead culture? And I think comedy leads culture because, like, again, what we've said is that they have comics have the ability to put culture in front of our face 
and say, you idiots, this is what you're doing to each other. This is what you're doing to yourself. And you've got to be able to laugh at this because it has to change. There, there's a comedian for every one of us. Obviously, we picked six or seven people uh, today, but I could name a bunch more. Um, one of my favorite comedians is Rodney Dangerfield. Uh, I just think that Rodney's incredibly funny. And there's millions of them. You know, we're not we're not trying to leave anyone out, but just because we didn't have 14 days to do this, and uh, we need to shorten our stuff. So let me just let me just uh, do a little uh, pitch for the sponsor, and, and that and that simply is. Uh, agnetislife.com is our website, obviously. And let me just tell you quickly what that is in case you think it's a new medication. It's not. Uh, we created the website for people over the age of 60 who are curious about life, who want to be engaged in life, who find uh, varied subjects interesting and informative. Uh, we always open our virtual door to comments and criticisms and likes and dislikes on what we're doing. Um, uh, our site is doing really well. We're growing. Again, it's agnetuslife, A-G-N-I-T-U-S-L-I-F-E.com, agnetuslife.com. Agnetus is a Latin word for recognition or to be recognized. And we felt that people over 60 are often not recognized and are not uh, given the recognition they deserve. So we're here to help out with that. Again, if you're under 50, eh, we'll let you on the site, but we really want 60 and over. The other thing before you say goodbye, Bill, our next website, um, I mean, our next uh, podcast, excuse me, is with a tremendously interesting woman. Her name is Arlene Goldbart. She's a writer, a lecturer, a social commentator, just a brilliant woman. Uh, and Arlene is gonna come on with us uh, the next few weeks. We're going to discuss a book that she has called The Culture of Possibility. It's a wonderful book. Uh, I'm looking forward to, to uh, actually talking with her and doing a little more. So until the next time, take care of each other, respect each other. Peace. Peace.